Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this is Storymakers Show. And we are so thrilled to be here today with Heather Young, whose um, debut novel, The Lost Girls, has just been nominated for an Edgar Award for Best First Novel, uh, which will be announced on April 27th. And um, I'm going to read you Heather's bio because I, I think it's charming. Um, <laughs> and it is this. After... Do you want to read it? You read it. After a decade practicing law and another raising kids, Heather decided to finally write the novel she'd always talked about writing. She holds an MFA from uh, the Bennington Writing Seminar and is an alumnus of the Squaw Valley Writers Workshop. Very nice. And the Tin House Writers Workshop. Also very nice. All of which helped her start writing like a, stop writing like a lawyer. I am still reading like an aging person, so that's part of what's happening there. Uh, she lives in Mill Valley, California with her husband and two teenage children. When she's not writing, she's biking, hiking, neglecting potted plants, and reading books by other people that she wishes she'd written. She's currently working on her second novel, Love Lock. And I think that one just sold as well. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. It's sold to HarperCollins. And yeah, I have a draft due to them in September. Wow. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, well, I really want to... Um, yeah, well, we'll start with what we're working on. Um, so, well, since, since you've started, why don't you start? <laughs> so is that what you're working on madly? <laughs> yes, I am working on it madly. Um, I've been working on it for about six months now, and uh, it's fun and exciting to be working on a different project and getting to know different characters than the ones in The Lost Girls. Uh, it's challenging because unlike my first novel, I have a deadline and I have expectations to meet, and it's makes it a bit of a different challenge. So part of my experience is learning to navigate those challenges and write a second book. Yeah, and I actually, well, once we do, I, this is why I always start with us because now I wanna, I have so many questions about the differences between writing a book when you're, you know, even I think going through graduate school and everything versus writing a book under under deadlines. So we'll, we'll dig into all of that. Um, and I hear someone hammering behind us. So that'll just remind us of the labor of <laughs> writing because that's out of our control. Uh, we're in our off, an office building, but um, Angie, what are you working on? I am working on Lost in the Middle, and we are cranking along in pre-production and getting all of that kind of squared away. We're, we're starting shooting in April, so yes. it's all just... And it blew up. I don't think we've talked about that on the podcast, but uh, it went out in all the local papers, and um, and so it's all of a sudden we got like 300 people standing up and saying, I want to help, I want to be in it, I want to be crew, and it's really exciting because it's a grassroots project that is based kind of, well, it's inspired by... Angie's life growing up in this community. So it's it's very cool to kind of have the community come together and make it happen. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I just wanted to update everybody who's been listening to Angie go, I'm just keep working on this script. <laughs> <laughs> the script is still not done. <laughs> so now it's like- That is very exciting. That is great. Yeah, and it's, and it's kind of funny because it's whether it's done or not, you know, it gets made and that's it. It's like getting published. It's like, right. Exactly, you write it because you love it and whatever happens to it, afterwards if people respond to it that's great but it's the passion of the project I think it matters the most yeah yeah it, it is but it is exciting when people start to love it I think it's like, yes it is 
Um, so I am, uh, I have, I printed out my book and I edit, I've been, you know, I edited it all by hand. And so it's just this sort of typing it in. Sometimes it's, I made a, some stupid note to myself, like revise this scene, which I hate. Cause I'm like, I don't want to revise the scene, but a lot of it's already revised and I'm typing it in. And I'm so thrilled because this morning I was, I did cafe writing with my writing buddy and I w went through like 50 pages of edits which was really exciting because it's I've done about 50 in the last week and so just to, to really get to focus it was thrilling <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you have a similar revision process to mine which I haven't heard a lot of other people use which is that you take what you've typed and what you've created and you print it out and you edit and then you basically type the whole thing back in again now, are you typing? Now, I, I am actually editing. Like, I'm typing in the changes, but I'm not doing a page one. Is that what you did? You what you started with the blank thing? Well, I'll I'll write it. I'll get about a hundred pages written, and then I stop, and I literally handwrite the entire manuscript out, copying from the printed document and making changes because I find that if you have to handwrite it you realize that there are words you don't really need. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> cool paragraphs even. Do I really want to write this? Does it matter to the story? Yeah. Oh, I guess not. So then you delete it. So you compose initially typing. Right. Then you handwrite it as an editing gesture. As an editing gesture. And then I retype the entire thing. Again, making edits as I transfer the handwriting into basically a new document. I love it. I, yeah. It's very is, laborious, but I have found it's great for winnowing and yeah. really, I think at this point, we are all such fast typists that yeah. we can type almost as fast as we can think. Mm -hmm. And so using longhand makes you slow down and really think about your story and about the scene and about the individual moment that's happening as you write. And for me, I find it a great way to de delve into the story in ways that I otherwise wouldn't be able to. That's amazing. So where are you right now with your current project in that back and forth? <laughs> so I've got about 100 pages written. So I just finished the first round of that process. I wrote everything out by hand and have typed it back in and now I'm basically staring at the screen waiting for the muse to tell me what the next chapter is going to be. Wow. I'm not someone that works from an outline. I work like someone groping in the dark. <laughs> wow. So I, Which is yeah. interesting for mystery, right? Is this one a mystery too? This one's a mystery also and I think it's probably more of a straightforward mystery than The Lost Girls was. Mm -hmm. So I'm finding that that does need a bit more structural planning, and that's something I'm having to learn to do. Although I heard that Agatha Christie would not know, and what she would do is sort of make it possible that it could be anybody, and then once she got to the end and figured out who it was, she would sort of, then she could sort of go back and ramp up those clues and things, and, you know, the others would become red herrings, or, I guess. Wow, that's really, that's really cool, and I can see that that's why it makes her story so effective, because it literally could be anybody when you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also heard she had like dementia over time. So I'm just going to say that maybe she did know and then didn't know. And forgot. And, and, forgot. Then, and then knew. That's a way of becoming a fresh reader of your work. 
<laughs> that's making me feel, me feel better about my like perimenopausal dementia that I've got going on. <laughs> there you go. It's all, I, yeah. it's all part of being great. Um, exactly. This is the old age one. I'm like, oh, I can't see the thing to read. <laughs> So, so, okay. So let's, let's talk about the lost girls, um, which I just loved. And, um, so it goes, it goes back and forth between, um, a journal, a story in a, in a set of journal or in a journal, um, written by a, a character who is deceased in the, in the other story. Right. And, and, Correct. and has left her house to, to the, the main character of that story. I'm yes. Not, I'm not actually great at this with my own work either, but so anyway. So there's so there's a mystery unfolding, um, in well in the journal pages we're sort of being told like conf sort of the confession of what happened although we don't know exact we don't know what she knows to reveal right and that that's how it differs I think from a more conventional mystery in that you're being told what happened from the perspectives of, of someone who knows and who is um, teasing out and telling the story at her own pace and in her own way, but yes. you're confident that you're eventually going to know because this person knows. She's gonna tell you. Yes. But then there's this front story with her um, great niece, no, her niece, her niece yes. and her, and the, and, the, uh, and, her, and the, the daughters of her niece, Justine, right? Yes. And so Justine is our, our other heroine, and, and, and we sort of also know that at some point she's going to encounter this journal, and she's going to know more. And so as she's wondering things, uh, and things start to get revealed to her, we're learning some other things and kind of knowing, we're, sometimes we're ahead of her in knowing what, what's going on. Yes. In fact, most of the time we are ahead of her. So one of the things I really wanted to ask you as I was reading, because I thought it was masterful how we would find something out and then in the, in the journal backstory. And then when we were with Justine, we would learn, we would, something would come up as kind of a question or something and they would, they would shed light on each other going back and forth, those revelations. So, I mean, at some point did you, did you have to like put up a giant piece of paper and map it? That was my fantasy of it. Like, how did you, figure out the, the conversation between the two sections. Yes, I did at one point, about two thirds of the way through, decide it was such a muddle that I needed to have the giant crazy person board. And then I did make the giant beautiful mind board with all the chapters and moved scenes around and drew different colored lines for different themes because I had read a number of books that have these kinds of alternating timeline stories that switch off and I have found that what makes them not work is when there isn't that conversation between the present and the past. I feel like if, if you are learning something about the main story, which is what happened to this family in both timelines, then you'll stay engaged in both timelines as a reader because clues and, and um, reflections will, will bounce back and forth between the two stories. And that only happens if everything's lined up exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it's, and there was a lot of, of me thinking about how can something that Justine learns in the present inform what the reader is learning about the past and vice versa. And so were you, so you were moving chapters around, were you like creating a scene or creating a revelation in the present? To yes, yes. So sometimes I would say to myself, I need a chapter that really focuses on and explains the relationship between these two sisters. 
Mm-hmm. And so what could happen that would do that? And I came up with a scene where they swim out to the pontoon and Lucy falls behind because she's not as strong a swimmer. And that chapter does a lot of work because it shows you what those two sisters relationship is like. And it also sets the stage for some things that happen later. So yes, I was often motivated by writing a chapter that would do do some work, do a certain amount of work, do a thing that I needed done in the story. But what's interesting is you just said that you're a person who doesn't plan. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that um, it's interesting because obviously you're aware of certain things and you're saying like, okay, at this moment, I need something. And so I'm going to write to what I need. I'm not planning it out from the beginning necessarily, but I am kind of... Um, you know, because there's so many different structures in the world, right? And there's so many different ways to kind of lay things out. And so it is interesting that you have you have a thinking or sort of foreplanning step as part of your exploratory process as well. Yes. And certainly for both of my books, I have known the ending going in. And uh-huh. like Agatha Christie, I do know what happens and I do know who done it. Ah, oh, that's... And you, you knew that even before you started to write or... Pretty quickly after I started to write, yes. So that helps because then you're trying to create characters who would do what you need them to do. And then you're trying to create scenes that show the reader who the characters are so that when they do the things that they do, it makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then are you also trying to create red herrings and things? Yes, although I will say the red herrings happened mostly after the first draft was done. Mm-hmm. I wrote it in a pretty linear way, and then when it was done, there was a lot of revision that went on in terms of developing those other more subsidiary characters who can be red herrings um, in the second and third drafting process. Mm-hmm. And, but did you always have the two narratives going on? Well, when I first came up with the idea of the story... Uh, Lucy was not dead at all. She was alive. And she had invited Justine to help her go through the house because she was dying. And so the story started out that way. And I got about three chapters into it and realized that that was not a dynamic way to tell this story. It was two women in a house going through newspaper clipping and reading <laughs> letters. It's like, it's like what we all dread, right? Yes, <laughs> I don't want to go elsewhere at the house. <laughs> Exactly. It was, that was every scene was that, and it was really, really boring. I thought, okay, well, what if Lucy is already dead and then she can tell her story in a journal and I'll alternate the chapters and, um, and it did create for me at least more energy behind the storytelling because Lucy then had a very clear voice and purpose and Justine didn't have Lucy. So she was on her own and that created some tension around her situation with the boyfriend and all of that. Yeah. It's... So yeah. I think when you're writing, you have to really be willing to, you know, as Flattery O'Connor said, kill your darlings. And that sometimes means that you have a concept for a book and you get four or five chapters in and you realize it's completely wrong and you need to start it over. Mm. I mean, I know people who have written entire books and then realize it needed to be told in first person and it was told in third and they have to rewrite the whole thing. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be, I think, willing 
to see that you have completely gone off on the wrong track and make that enormous course correction. Now, here's a question because I find that that there's, I mean, and this might just be me, but like I can doubt at almost any stage. So how do, what's the difference between, you know, that early necessary course correction and kind of a later feeling that if you'd only known as what you know now, you could have just done it so much better, you know, and yet that's the next book maybe, or like, like at what point do you sort of say, well, this is flawed, but strong and I'm going to keep it as opposed to throw it away. Oh, that's a tough one. And I, I, am plagued by self-doubt every day. When I read what I wrote the day before, I hate it. When I read what I wrote six months before, I hate it even more. Ah. Constant battle with that imposter syndrome and feeling of inadequacy that what I'm writing is truly terrible. And I think I've come to understand that most writers have that hanging over them all the time. And so... I haven't really gotten any better at at not feeling that way, but I think I've gotten better at recognizing when the flaws I'm seeing are truly horrible (laughs) and need to be fixed. And the flaws I'm seeing that are, maybe I'm just never going to be able to do that any better. (laughs) And that's just a flaw I'm going to have to live with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you have readers that come in at some point and, and when? Um, I have a friend, um, who is writing a novel as well, and she and I share pages, but at this point we're, um, we're about at the same point in our writing. So now it's more about being supportive. Mm. So give me her pages and my job is to say, this is awesome. And I give her my pages and she says, oh my God, this is literary genius. (laughs) And then there comes a point when we can agree that, okay, now I'm ready for some criticism and some constructive advice. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite there yet. So do you give her, you give her, like how often do you give each other pages? You know, we were trying to do it every week, but I think now it's been more every four to six weeks because we're just really muddling through and it wasn't, it wasn't all that helpful mm. to share only five or six pages at a time. Right. So we'll see. When I have a complete draft, I have other people who I will ask to read it and give me that beta read overview. The ones who say, I don't believe that this character would ever do that. And you need to hear that at that point. And, and those people are waiting in the wings. <laughs> yeah. Good. That's great. Yeah. You, I know you work pretty closely with um, with Ellen. Yeah, we have a writing group. Yeah, a group of yeah. folks that reads a completed draft. It's really an invaluable resource for a writer, I think. Yeah, it's yeah, because you can't be your own reader. That's the one thing you can never do. Yeah, you really can't. Yeah. No, I can. <laughs> <laughs> if I put something in a desk drawer for like, like you were like six months, I hate it even more. It's like six months, I won't know who wrote it. <laughs> So, <laughs> it's a real advantage. It's not dementia. <laughs> now, do you love mysteries? Did you know it was a mystery? I did not know it was a mystery. I was telling it more as a family story and a, a way to explore how complicated and really dark the relationships between sisters can be. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was the energy in the book. When I sold it to my editor... She helped me 
with with some of those red herrings and with some of those faints in different directions to make it more of a mystery. But it wasn't really what I intended it to be at the beginning. And the fact that it's nominated for an Edgar Award is is kind of it's great, but it it is I I have apparently written a mystery. <laughs> well, do you have a sister? I do have a sister. Yes. You have like some dark sides to your relationship no, with your sister. We, well, you know, only in the sense that sisters always have a bit of competition and rivalry. Mm. And to me that was what what some of the impetus for my story was, which was that even in the most incredibly normal of families, which mine totally is, Amazing. the nature of siblings is, is rivalry, is always competing for what seems like a scarce resource, your parents' love and affection, but, but isn't. <laughs> but we are each loved in different ways, and it's sometimes easy to look at the sibling and like or be envious of the particular love that they get that's different from the love you get. Because it's better than mine. <laughs> is it better than mine? Of course it is. And so even in, in what we would all define as the most white bread and normal families, you have these feelings. What happens when you don't have a family like that and you have a family that's incredibly messed up and dysfunctional where the rivalries between siblings are actually life and death? Mm-hmm. It's you know take that and and take it all the way to the darkest place that I could take it and see what would happen. And was that your intention? Because it does get very dark. I mean, did you did you say to yourself, you know, what could make this darker? What's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, how did you get yourself to keep digging in for darkness? You know, at first I was very afraid to go there. Um, I did have a terrific teacher who said something to the effect of your job as a storyteller is to take your character, fall in love with them, then put them up in a tree and throw rocks at them until they fall down. And that sounds horrible, but unless you're willing to throw the rocks, you'll never really get a great story. So over time, and it took many years to write this book, I did just push myself farther and farther down the path of being willing to let terrible things happen to my characters and, which was sometimes even harder, let my characters do terrible things to one another. Yeah. yeah. And I will say that it is dark and there were moments that were very disturbing, but it also had this pleasure that I almost associate with my, my younger reading, you know, my sort of voracious kind of YA reading. Not in no way is it actually a YA book, but it has, you know, the, the characters and the relationships and the, the kind of this, you know, and, and I think especially you know, the Justine and her daughters and kind of meeting you know, her journey and needing to escape and also to discover. I mean, I don't know, there was something in it that reminded me of, you know, the, those great pleasures of, you know, when you're sort of becoming a voracious reader. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> that's definitely like, going to be a question there. So. <laughs> well, I mean, to the point of the darkness that you were mentioning, I did, I, I as a reader, don't enjoy stories that are unrelentingly dark, mm. that are just nihilistic in their view of the world. So even though I had to push myself as far as I could in terms of darkening this story, I did want to leaven it with with hope and the possibility of redemption. And so at the end of the day, hopefully when you close the book, you feel that, that there is, all of these characters have come to a place that is lighter than the ones that they traveled through to get there. 
I mean, nobody except the person who's, you know, disappears perhaps um, is, is completely destroyed by any of the dark things. I mean, there is some deep resilience in all of these characters. Well, it would also kind of be boring. I think speaking to nihilist fiction, if there's no hope, there's no tension. And so just at a basic level, True. You need that. Yes. You need that tension. So yes, you want the story to, you want there to be the tension and hope that the characters will pull through. And you, at the end of a, of a story that I enjoy to read, you do feel like you want to be rewarded for that hope and for that faith and that optimism that you're feeling against all odds that things will turn out not hopelessly awful. I'm not a Pollyanna kind of writer where everybody's going to skip away in sunshine and rainbows. But I do like to leave the reader with, with a sense of, of hope. Here's a funny question. So the book is set, the, 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 the more recent story, the contemporary story is set in 1999. Actually, yes. the end of 1999, which is, which, and I actually, for a little while, my book was set there. My book keeps sort of sliding around in time, but, but for a period, and I, actually, while well, I was That's reading. That's going to be the next title. The Lost <laughs> It was actually part of it that was set in that period. And I kept thinking, although it wasn't really making it into my book particularly either, about Y2K and that whole panic, which was does not feature in the book. But I guess I wondered what why you set it in 1999 as opposed to sort of now and um, and if any of that stuff came up. Well, yes and no. Um, I set it in 1999 because I wanted to set the origin story, the Lucy story in 1935. And that I picked just because I'm always fascinated by that particular decade. I think it's a critical turning point in, in, in Western history, really, with the Great Depression and the rise of Nazism and all this other stuff is going on in the world. Yet to tell a story that's set in a remote location where the only impact you feel of that is the economic one, I was drawn to that decade. And so if I'm going to have a woman who's alive, who was... 10 or 11 or 12 years old in 1935, she couldn't still be alive in 2016. She would be ancient. So I had to come up with a timeline just by doing the math where she could be plausibly alive. And then I picked 1999. I could have gone with a later year because I did like that on the cusp of the 21st century. And I did like her, the idea of her writing her life story, knowing she's not going to see the next century being a child entirely of the 20th century and passing this knowledge and this story and this obligation that she's passing on to a child of the 21st century. So in my mind, I don't think it comes out that much in the book. I did like that. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to other writers about this as well. If you set your story before 2000, you avoid having to deal with most of social media and the internet. Right. So I have a woman who's running from her boyfriend and she's running from her boyfriend in the era before Google and Google Earth and all the kinds of things you can do to find somebody now. So it made it more plausible that she could hide away from him and her past if it was set in that era. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm absolutely, when, as my book slides up and down, you know, they get and lose their cell phones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I had to go back and do some research into what cell phones looked like in 1999 
they were horrible. That was when I got my first cell phone and it was the size of a football. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. And I keep looking up. It's so interesting how, how much has changed so rapidly. Yes. Yes. But I also, part of my motivation is that I, is the, is the time period for a back, kind of a backstory. Um, yeah. 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 There's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the new story is a more straightforward mystery. Do you think that that's part, partly because the, this book, The Lost Girls, was received as a mystery? I think it's partly that. I also do think that, um, mysteries were my favorite genre to read as I was growing up and I still love them now. And to me, this is an era when mystery writing has become so much more complex and literary, I guess is a word where Agatha Christie wrote great books, but she didn't really delve into characters and motives and, and rich themes. And you look at writers nowadays, like um, Tana French and, uh, Laura Lippman, who explore crime from the standpoint of why someone d would do it and what impact it has on the survivors. And it's so much more fertile ground for storytelling. So I'm kind of liking it. Yeah. And that's part of, that's actually an interesting thing because I believe that the winner of the Edgar first novel award last year was the Pulitzer Prize winner, The Sympathizer. Is that yes. Right? Yes. Which I actually am like a few chapters into. And, um, and I've had two different friends who are writers. One of them was like, it, was, it wasn't a thriller at all. And she was, she was disappointed. And the other one also, she wasn't, she's not so much a thriller mystery reader, but she felt like it was almost nonfiction. Now I'm still in the beginning. So I don't know if it changes. I was so, be, so now I was going in not thinking Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, you know, Edgar Prize winner. I was thinking kind of, okay, this is not a thriller. It's kind of not, you know, kind of maybe it sounds boring. And so then I was delighted with the scenes and the world, but it does seem like we're in a moment when everything, a lot of things are getting called a thriller. Even the book, The Vegetarian, which I read, some review called it a thriller and it's, it's, it's experimental and haunting, but it's, it's not a thriller. Right. And I think anybody who calls my book a thriller is just crazy because it's not a thriller. A thriller is... I don't know, Girl on the Train or something, a book that's just got that propulsive storytelling quality. Although you've got like the creepy guy going after, I mean, there's certainly a way in which, with the snow, I mean, it's got. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I will, I will say I have, been in, I have been reading the other books that have been nominated for the Edgar Award along with me because I'm going to meet these people in New York. I wanted to be able to have, to say I read their books. Yeah. It's interesting to me because only a couple of them, I haven't read them all yet, only a couple of them are what I would consider to be classic mysteries. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of them where I had to ask myself, where is the mystery in this story? <laughs> I'm not sure there is one, but I'm yet... I'm wondering about anything. <laughs> well, you know, I'm interested in what's happening, but it's not like there's a dead person and people are figuring out why they're dead in the classic sense of the whodunit mystery. So I think that just goes to show you that mystery has really broadened its umbrella to include a lot of very complicated storytelling and I am happy to be under that umbrella. Well, and I, I think my book is going that way, but I, I'm really interested in your, your, your just deft art with revelation. And I wonder if that's something 
you particularly love, like one thing I particularly love both in comedy and in drama is the misunderstanding where one character is talking about one thing, the other character thinks they're talking about something else, right? I mean, it's three's company. Yes. So like some other much more high <laughs> and I just, it's like, it cracks me up on every, like high, low, every level. And so, right. um, so I think that works its way into my plots. And I'm wondering if you have a similar kind of thrill to, um, being like say as a reader being ahead of the uh, uh, characters yeah i did a lot of thinking about the power of revelation while writing the story because i think obviously that's what drives many books especially mysteries is like the big reveal at the end of what happened and why but at the same time as a writer that can come off as really manipulative if you're not careful you have to reveal it in a way that your reader, for one thing, isn't going to be completely taken by surprise. Like you're pulling it completely out of your butt. <laughs> it's got to be, <laughs> it, it, it's got to make sense given the story that you've told. And it also can't feel like it was delayed just on purpose so that the writer could throw up in the closet and go, boo. Right. And those are the two things I think that make it the hardest to do a good revelation and caused me a lot of sleepless nights. You know, I had to make sure that Lucy, for example, who know, knows exactly what happens, has been set up as a, as a character who you can believe won't tell you until the end. Because she wants you to understand. Right? Exactly. She's maybe even herself trying to figure something out. Exactly. She is working her way through her memories in a journey of self-discovery and that's why she doesn't just say, let me tell you what happened to Emily da, 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 and set it all out right away. So that's, that's work of character and it's work of plotting, but it's all about the revelation and making it feel, feel earned. I also think it's because the character Lucy, who's a child, a girl in the story, she doesn't know. And so we we get to know what she knows and we get to know everything she knows. There's no coyness about, there's no, you know, Lucy, the, the character, isn't hiding anything from us. Lucy, the narrator, is telling the story in order. Right. Yes. Yes. But yes. Lucy, the character, we're, we're on, we know what she knows. And, and in some ways, we might even know more if we can read into the, yeah, because she's so young. Yeah, but that's one of the things I think if you're working on a mystery or any story where some big reveal at the end is going to be kind of the be-all and end-all of the book, it's really tricky to make that feel right, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it has to go to the, speak to the character, too, right? We have to learn something not only about the plot, but about the characters when that reveal comes, maybe. Yes, and ideally the reader reads that big reveal and goes, aha! And they're surprised, but then they look back at the trail that's come before and say, of course, it had to be this way. It couldn't have been any other way. What was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's successful. And people like Kate Atkinson, I mean, writers that I really admire are people who can pull that off. Are there any books about writing that you used to, to write these the books? So I, um, I loved, uh, a book called The Stuff of Fiction. Mm. And it's by Douglas Bauer, who was one of my teachers at Bennington. And it's just, for someone who had never written a word of fiction before, Amazing. it was a great primer. It has chapters that are titled things like dialogue, 
and foreshadowing and theme, yet it doesn't talk down to you like you're a complete idiot. It assumes some basic knowledge of storytelling. I found it extremely helpful. And I think it would be helpful to someone at any stage of writing to just go back to the nuts and bolts of world building and read that book. Mm. So I would, I would recommend his book. And then The Kite and the String just came out a couple of months ago by Alice Madison. And it's more of like um, amusing on where the ideas for stories come from than a true craft book. But it's, it's helpful and interesting and kind of helps maybe access your creativity in a way that can sometimes be difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing to me. I mean, you must be just a voracious reader because it's amazing to me that you could kind of be so talented and not have been secretly laboring away at this your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was a terrifically horrible fiction writer when I started. I am, I am better now, even on the days when I hate every word I've written. I am. I can. I can see that I'm better than when I started. What it made, was a. Lo- what made you want to do it? Um, I had always wa- wanted to do it. I never really had a, a a story idea that grabbed me by the throat and made me push everything else in my life aside to do it. But I had been home for about ten years, not working, and it was time to maybe think about a second chapter in my professional life. I didn't want to go back to practicing law. And a good friend of mine asked me, she said, well, what did you love? I was complaining about it. Oh, the travel's horrible. And you know, your, your time is not your own and you have these deadlines and it's just awful. And she said, well, what did you like about it? And I said, what I liked about it was the writing. And what I liked about the writing was the storytelling because when you're a lawyer, you're essentially telling your client's story. Mm. You have to stick to what happened to them, but you try to tell their story in a way that's extremely sympathetic and will convince a judge or a jury that, that they shouldn't be punished or they should get what they want that they're asking for. Mm. And nobody in a legal dispute is a saint. <laughs> so you get a lot of training in how to, to make a flawed person relatable. Mm. And even though the writing style is very different, the storytelling aspect of it was there. So I thought, maybe I will try to parlay that skill into fiction and see if I can finally write a novel. Mm. And you sure as heck did. <laughs> and you did you now just I, I, we're going to go into our last segment. But did okay, you, really quickly, did you? Um, did you find your agent through Slush or can you just give, people are always so curious about that. I totally found it through Slush. I did a ton of research into the kinds of agents that want this sort of book. I made a giant spreadsheet of agents, like a hundred of them. But I will tell you, I was extremely lucky because I sent out 10 query letters. I hit send, I went to bed, I didn't sleep all night long and a blizzard hit New York while I was sleeping or not sleeping. And the next day I got a response, two responses to my query letters from agents that said, essentially, I am stuck at home with my cat and all my meetings have been canceled because of the blizzard. So I thought I'd just check my slush pile and see if there was anything there. And yours happened to be the top one in there because it had just come in. Your manuscript sounds kind of interesting. Will you send it to me? Mm. So I did. And then 
I got my agent. So I really do think that serendipity <laughs> played a role. And if I, definitely schedule a blizzard. Yes. Wait until there is a giant blizzard and then immediately send your query letter. And there are more and more of them. So <laughs> There are, exactly. This would have been a great year to query agents. <laughs> uh, well, and I will say that they, they, were, they were lucky too. So yes. as are we. So, um, well, our last segment is Steal This. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. So we end each episode looking at something we've come across in our wanderings or readings that we want to take and make our own. Yes. Well, I would have to say um, Marilyn Robinson's first novel, Housekeeping, which not a lot of people know about because they've heard of Gilead and all the books she's written since. But this is a little book, not very long. And it is exquisite. It's exquisite. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about sisters and it's about the veil between life and death and madness and sanity. And she is, I think, I loved Gilead, but I think housekeeping is her at the height of her powers. Mm -hmm. And I would steal it if I could. (laughs) Just the whole thing. That whole thing. I would just take her name off the cover and put mine right on there. You know, now that you say that, I can actually see like maybe, you know, light, like in that light, spicy way, like a little influence. Totally. Like absolutely. Or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's by, um, I think it's a, it's a big body of water. I can't remember if it's a lake or if it's a, a bay or something. But yeah, there's water everywhere. And she's got this running theme of water symbolizing madness and sanity, whether you're above the water or below. Mm. And it's... It's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, it was a big influence on me and I wish that I could have written it. Ah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Angie? Um, well, today I was trying to think about what I want to steal because mostly my head has been buried in the computer and doing computery things. Um, maybe it can be about that. Even. Well, you know, what I actually ran into was a little clip from, I think it's Simon Sinek who wrote Start With Why. And he was talking about patience and just sort of how that's a skill and how mm-hmm. we know, he was talking specifically about the generation identified as millennials, but I think it's true for all of us at this point that so much of our life is so easily accessed and so quickly that yes. we don't have a lot of practice in saying, you know what, I'm going to wait on that. There's not, you know what I mean? And so then when we turn it around and we look at our own work, even though we're doing our own work, I think we start expecting that kind of instantaneity. Yeah, instant gratification. We want everything to be perfect the first time. I think that's very true. Yes. I'm going to steal patience this week. Okay, that's good. I might steal some part of that as well. Well, I'm reading The Sympathizer, which actually is due back tomorrow at the library, so I'm going to go end up going to buy it. But, um, but the I, what I do love about it is the kind of density of world. I mean, it's so specific, and it feels so authentic, and yet he's an American. I mean, he's, he's, a, a, he's American, and so he's writing a character. Anyway, just so it, the fact that he kind of embodied this guy who lived – 
30, 40 years ago in this, in this world that, you know, he can't really have seen. Yeah. It's pretty spectacular. And it reminds me of like how muscly that kind of prose is, you know, where it's like every sentence contains something that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's a gift of exquisite empathy that he has, that he can so clearly put himself in the mind of his character and the place of his character. And that is something to envy, really. Yeah. You know, it's funny yeah. that you say that, because I just, I was listening to a podcast with Don DeLillo talking about Underworld, and he was saying, I believe, he was saying that, that like, really, the stuff, he doesn't know anything about X, Y, and Z, they were asking him, but he he just gets into the character and kind of and kind of the character knows. It wasn't like I do tons and tons of research. It was like I only know what the character knows when I'm in the character's head. So I think, wow. Yeah. And I like that because empathy is actually easier to take on than coming up with that kind of dense sort of layer of fact-based reality. <laughs> right. And I think it's something that people think of as a more feminine characteristic so maybe it should be easier for us to reach out and embrace it. Yeah, and, as, and it's like, and, and, and as something that's like muscly and intellectual too. Yes, yes, and it makes every reading experience richer. So, all right, I'm going to take that with me too and try to, try to put that into love lock a little bit. So how can people find you and your book and follow the, uh, the awards and, and <laughs> next book and all those things? How, how, where are you findable as, as a public persona? Oh, my, my public persona. Um, probably the best thing is to go to my website, which is heatheryoungwriter.com. And I'm also on Facebook under, I think, Heather Young Writer as well. Um, and Twitter, the usual places. But website is the best place to start. And bookstore, how about paperback? Is the paperback? Oh, yes. The paperback is coming out April 4th. Ooh, oh, that's very soon. Yeah, it's very soon. It has an awesome new cover. I'm so excited. <laughs> Are you going to be reading out at all for that? I hope so. I'm, I'm going to contact a few local places and see if they'd be willing to have me come and wave the paperback around. Yeah, well, and you will be at Sonoma County Writers Camp. Well, so, uh, right, I think you're everyone. Yes, that's right. Well, yes, I am coming and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, we are too. And thank you so, so much for, um, for joining us and talking to us about your wonderful book. And I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much for having me. 